Oh, man, I hope people like nerds navel-gazing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 33 of the Superhero Ethics Podcast. I'm Jacob Malicic. I'm one of your hosts. And today is going to be a very fun day for me. We're talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. It's something I really enjoy when it comes up in fiction, when it comes up in various forms of media. It's something that I look for when when shows and, and other media explore this issue. It's it, it just grabs me, something I really appreciate. And that is effectively what is an individual, or another way to put it is at what point do we decide that uh, what was what would normally be considered a thing is actually a person and now has the same rights as you or I, has the same responsibilities for their actions. We're hold, held to the same uh, level of responsibility as you or I. Uh, joining me, as always, today is Matthew Westfox. How are you doing today, Matthew? Pretty good, Jake. I'm pretty good. Like you, I'm, I'm really excited about this episode. Um, I know we're going to be focusing not exclusively but primarily on Star Trek. Um, and right. some of my favorite episodes from Star Trek are the episodes about, you know, is Data a person with rights or is he a robot? Is the doctor a, you know, a person or is it just a computer projection? Um, so this is a topic really dear to my heart as well. And I'm uh, really excited to do this and excited to get to be lazy and let you run the show. All right. Well, let's dive right in. We're going to start with the with the heaviest question first, get the, the heavy stuff out of the way, and then we can just nerd out about <laughs> Star Trek and other, and other exactly. sci-fi shows. Uh, so throwing it out to you, Matthew. What is a person? What makes an entity go from like the computer you're working on right now to something that you now feel you need to treat as a person? What attributes do you ascribe to personhood? This is a really hard question. And I'll mm-hmm. just sort of say as a way of framing it, like I think what I talked about this before on this podcast, one of the things I love most about science fiction is its ability to make us ask ourselves, you know, take the questions that are already happening in our own world and then ask us to look at them in a different way, which is going to reflect back on the first question. Um, and for anyone who thinks these questions are pure science fiction, you know, in a lot of ways, this is the same question we're asking when we talk about um, when does human life begin in terms of pregnancy? When does, you know, is animal life, what is the difference between animal life and human life and, and these kind of things? So, so to me, I, I, I'm really excited for us to be going on into this question. I'm also stalling a little bit because it's a hard one. Um, uh-huh. I want to focus on the last part of what you asked in terms of like when when does the switch happen between the computer and the um, it being a, a person and the individual, and, yeah, and being an individual. I think I think the 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 real point for me is at the moment of self realization and self actualization when it becomes. And, and here I'm at a disadvantage uh, to you and probably many of our listeners in that I'm not a, a computer programmer. So my, my language for this is probably going to, to really be flawed. But I think to some extent it's when it beco- – as I understand it, a computer program is at the end of the day still always going to be a sequence of if-then statements. You know, if this, do that. To me, it becomes life when you, when you start to be able to break out of that. When you start to be able to go beyond just that, that if you really knew the depths of the programming, you could predict every single thing the person would do, the, the robot would do, because it was all computer programmed. And you always would know if you can figure out the exact if, 
you know what the program is going to say then. That's that's very interesting, uh, actually. I, I like that answer because it is – so not only am I reasonably familiar with, with how programming languages work, with how computer programming works, I also have a background in life sciences. Oh, cool. So uh, what you've described is effectively an emergent property. Uh, you're talking about uh, this idea, which which exists in biology, of something being greater than the sum of its parts. So something, when 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 a program, for example, goes beyond uh, its coding and creates something that it was never designed to do, that to you starts seeming like it might we we might have to treat that as life. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And again, it's it's for me. There's a couple of different things happening here. I mean, there's a there's a whole part to me about the purely human constructed life that also right. throws me that we're going to get into later down the road. Um, but I think that's where I'd start. It's that moment of the self-realization, the self-actualization and the ability to break out of just, you know, my appendix is alive in that it is part of a living being and my appendix is doing living specific things. But my appendix doesn't have a mind of its own. My appendix doesn't think for itself. My appendix responds to the chemical and neurological stimuli that other parts of my body send it, and so it does what it's supposed to do. Right. And therefore, if my appendix were to stop functioning and were to, to do something in a way that would endanger the whole, I would have no problem cutting it out and literally tossing it aside in the way right. that, like, you know, if one person who's part of a group is endangering the whole, you, you want to do things to keep yourself safe, but we're not going to be so casual about cutting a person out and tossing it aside, or at least... We shouldn't. We we are in some cases, to be sure. Right, right, and and that's that's why I wanted to use the term personhood and individual, a person and individual, rather than just life, because I think we already, as as people, often draw a distinction between what is alive, what what is life, and what is a person, what is now sentient. Sure. I think you and I would never treat like we we routinely do not treat uh, bacteria or viri as as persons right yes. they're not people to us these are hostile life forms that uh for well at least for us most of the time hostile although bacterium sometimes are actually beneficial to us and then right. we want them around uh, that's a symbi that's a different kind <laughs> of symbiotic relationship but there's this idea there's a separation between what is okay you know, this is definitely life which that emergent property of a program, we would be like, hmm, that's that's seeming like something that like is transitioning from, uh, from just a sum of its programming to something that's showing signs of life. To okay, this is something that this is an entity that is self-aware and is making decisions, right? right? Um, and one thing I want to one thing I want to challenge you on this uh, because I feel that it's a distinction some people might draw is does something have to have some kind of emotional awareness in order to be considered a person? And I bring this up specifically because of the character of data. So I'm not sure. Um, and I would say, I guess, first of all, there's two different questions. One of which is, how do I define personhood in general versus how do I define when a machine uh, a, a human-built machine has crossed the line into being sentient life. Because right. I think in some ways the, 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 the way I'm going to think about this, if we're talking about when is an animal sentient versus when is a machine sentient, 
feel like very different questions. And so to me, establishing the same criteria feels problematic. Um, Interesting. But then I can almost immediately say that even saying that seems problematic. And there's a, you know, if Paul were on this this podcast, I'm sure he'd be pushing me on that because th- there's an extent to which I, as a as someone who enjoys eating meat, have have made a decision there about the value of animal life, even though right. I try to do all I can to respect it. Um, right. Again, that, that that's pulling us away a bit. I think it's not as much that emotional awareness is necessary in that. Because certainly, even within humanity itself, there's great differences. Um, you know, uh, people who are, are different uh, kinds of neurofunctioning. Some can be uh, much less, or even almost completely non-emotionally understanding. Right. So I don't think it's necessarily it's the ability to feel emotions. I think it's more just the ability to recognize oneself as a self. Um, right. Is to me the essential part here. And so again, the capacity for being able to navel gaze at all. Is one of your yeah. questions, <laughs> and, and, and I get that. I mean, yeah. we're basically saying if you could, if you could participate in this podcast, you're a person. Congratulations! Well, yeah, but you don't necessarily have to speak English, <laughs> to be sure. And and even there, I want to be careful because I think mm-hmm. there are varieties of human life which, through either difference or or problems, um, aren't even able to do that. And I'm not saying right. they're. You know, it's one of these things where I don't think we can just draw one simple line and say everything on this side of uh, of the line is life, everything on the other side isn't. I think right. it's more – it is kind of a situational issue. Um, right. So – so, but yeah, I think you're right. I think the, the making it just based on emotion is problematic. Yes, and I, I 100 percent agree. Uh, there, as, as you mentioned, and this is a great point, there are some human beings who, uh, who I've interacted with who I could say, you know, Lieutenant Commander Data from Star Trek actually demonstrates more emotional awareness than this person. <laughs> sure. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that this person is not a person. I specifically said this person for a right. reason, right? But it's it's a case where it it's something that um, I expect to possibly be there when dealing with, with a person, but doesn't necessarily have to be there. And I think, like, we're... we're where we draw the line, it's it's tricky, and it's a it's obviously uh, an issue we don't often have to tackle uh, right now. Although one of the reasons I think this is a good topic is that um, I feel that artificial intelligence is something that we could potentially even see ha- uh, emerging in our lifetime, sure. uh, which is which is very exciting to me, and also uh, very scary for a lot of people. Uh, which I get that, but I think like we have enough cautionary tales that we. Hopefully, won't make those mistakes. <laughs> Although I, my faith in humanity continues to <laughs> to call, be a source of disappointment for me in my life. You know, I, I when we were talking about Babylon Five a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that one of my frustrations with the show used to be the fact that the the coming of a fascist government in 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 our human world seemed so overhand, so, right? So you know, heavy handed that I was like, humanity would never allow that. Recent events have made me think that at least Americans might allow it, so I'm I'm not so positive with you are that that, that uh, we've learned the lessons of science fiction, but I'm certainly hopeful. <laughs> right, right, exactly. It's it's we're hopeful, but we can yeah we can definitely see us just like actually emerging one of those stories. So again, I, I don't think we're going to solve that question, and I'd like to move on to to some specifics. Uh, let's let's talk about some some specific characters sure. that that make us challenge what it means to be an individual in science fiction or i guess in our cases maybe not challenge it because we're very firmly on one side of the spectrum but 
uh, we'll lead with with my personal favorite, uh, the character of Data from Star yeah. Trek The Next Generation, um, just played by Brent Spiner, just a phenomenal uh, character that we're introduced to in in a way that we're like, hmm, this person is this this entity is other, uh, which has its own kind of issues. But then as the series progresses, there are multiple instances where we're exploring uh, Data's uh Data's attempt to understand himself. Right. So how do you feel about the character of Lieutenant Commander Data as a person? I mean, I think it, it's a complicated question. I think I do come down on the side, and I think the show is, is very clearly trying to make you come down on the side, that Data is a person. Um, mm-hmm. Especially because I think, I think what, what Data highlights that is so important, and here again I think is so vital to our own world, is how easy it is for us to start defining life, to define personhood by what we know. Right. It's not that Data isn't a person. And I think it becomes very clear in the show that Data is a person. Data has self-actualization. Data has an understanding of himself as a self. Data has the ability to make decisions that sometimes surprise people and go against things. But, But Data is a kind of life that is fundamentally different than every other kind of life that they've experienced. Mm-hmm. And I think that becomes really important because I think one of the things it really highlights is how easy it is to start defining life by how similar or different it is to what you and I, to what we know. Absolutely. And that's that's deeply problematic when we go down that road and don't and don't stop and question ourselves. Uh this this is a question that's actually explored uh once specifically with data in the episode The Measure of a Man, one of my favorite episodes featuring yep. data. Um, for those who aren't familiar with it, I mean, usual spoiler warnings apply. We're going to spoil <laughs> a ton of Star Trek. We're going to spoil some some Next Gen, some Voyager. We're going to spoil some Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. later yep. and some some stuff with Star Wars. So if you've seen any of these pro- – or if you haven't seen any of these properties, uh, I personally appreciate all of them, although to varying degrees. Uh, but specifically, I, I highly encourage uh, you to watch – the show Star Trek The Next Generation. I think it has aged very well, uh, still relevant to to this day. So true. anyway, in, in the episode of Measure The Measure of a Man, uh, there's a scientist from Starfleet who wants to have data shipped off to him so that he can take data apart, figure out how to make more datas right. to help Starfleet. And when he's doing this, when, when the scientist is doing this, uh, he enters into the episode with the perspective that data is a thing. Right. Data data is a tool that we can use to help Starfleet, and shouldn't be any question at all that I get to like put in a requisition order for data. And data says, "Uh, no, don't right. want." Because because he's and, concerned. There, there's legitimate concern that he right. might not survive the process, and that's the right. key thing here. Right. And he he makes that very clear that, like, I don't feel that this is correct. I don't feel this is right. And they hold a trial. They basically put Data's personhood on trial, that question on trial, uh, in order to to try to solve this problem. Um, It's a great episode. And uh, one of my favorite moments from it at the at the very end is when uh, we heard the scientist referring to Data as it as a thing throughout the entire episode. And then at at the end, when the trial is concluded and the person says, I am not convinced data, I'm not enough convinced that data isn't a person to allow this to happen. Right. Um, 
And Data walks up to the scientist and says, when you've got this figured out and you think that you can do this in a, in a way that keeps me safe and keeps my identity intact, I am very interested in helping you pursue your research. Right. And Data walks away and the scientist just stares slack-jawed as Data walks away and for the first time uses him uses him, he uses actual personalized pronouns to refer to data rather than othering him and, and, and objectifying him. Uh, that to me is, again, it, it's one of my favorite episodes. And, <laughs> well, and I, I, go yeah, on. I, I agree with you. I, I mean, I think it's a fantastic episode. And I think because in that moment, as you said, it highlights that one of the things I think is really interesting is I went back and rewatched the episode you and I were earlier trying to talk about setting a line of this is what life yep. is. The yep. judge never quite sets that line. Correct. What, what the, the judge says two things that I think are important. One is that she just has sort of a gut feeling. She has been convinced on a gut level that data is alive, that data is a person, um, which I think is very interesting because, again, we're not establishing the line. But the other thing she says, and I think this is also very important uh, from an ethical perspective, is – it's not that she's saying she's 100% convinced Data is alive. It's that she thinks mm -hmm. there's enough of a chance Data is a person, I should say a person not alive, that Data is a person that she cannot willingly allow Data's destruction. Right. Um, and I think that also becomes very important because I think it, it helps us to remember that I don't think the question of person or not person is a binary question. Um, right. I, I used to work in the field of reproductive rights and reproductive justice, and so that's one that I go back to a lot. And that was something that we would often talk about a lot, actually, is that the, the, the conversation around abortion and, 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 and um, fetal life and, and the embryo life and all of those things, one of the things we had to do was to break out of the idea that, that personhood is a binary, that there's actually all sorts of shades of gray. Um, and so I really love this episode because I think it really highlights this idea because I don't think she's saying that she thinks that Data is 100% a sentient human being the way any other human person is. But she's saying that he is now in a gray area at which destroying him and violating his rights is not something she's comfortable doing. Right, because if there is a, there is a chance that uh, – there is a chance that he is in fact a person in her eyes and that's too much of a risk for her to want to take. Right. She doesn't want that on her conscience. Now, let me ask you, because one of my favorite lines from the episode um, is actually spoken by the, the commander who wants to do two experiments on him. Um, mm. And, and it, he says, you know, it, he's pointing out, he's trying to argue that, like, Data isn't a person, that Data shouldn't have these rights. And he says, and, and the quote is, if it were a box on wheels, you wouldn't feel like this. And, and that line really strikes me, because it goes back to the point I was making before, that Mm -hmm. As much as there are lines that they try to establish, on some level, it does still seem to me that what they're getting at is data is a person because data feels like what we think of as a person. Data feels similar enough. He can have a conversation the way we think of people having conversations. He can, we can miss data. We can laugh about data. We can have the feelings for data that we have for a person. And 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 I'm not. I, I'm I'm not sure if that actually is the best way to go about this, and so I, I, right. I kind of wondered to you, if data were a box on wheels, how differently would we feel, and how would it change this question? I I personally don't feel any differently about it, uh, and, and interestingly, uh, 
again, in Next Gen, there are other episodes where they explore entities that don't look or act anything like us, right. but they ascribe these the attributes of, of individuals to. There's there's one episode where there's these little uh, little gizmos that hover and were designed to fix things, and they start showing uh, signs of self-awareness. And the crew of the Enterprise are like, oh, uh, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be like treating these things as tools anymore. And the people who've been using them as tools are all like, I, you guys are crazy. It's a, it's a box right. that that hovers around and does tools. It just runs, it just runs programs. Uh, short circuit, another property that <laughs> that uh, that explores this question, although in a much more humorous and much right. less uh, serious, level-headed fashion. But Johnny then. Five is alive. We know that Johnny Five <laughs> is alive and is a person. He's yes. the first robotic citizen of New York City, according to the, <laughs> according to the second movie. Uh, but yeah. Like there's there's one episode I don't remember the name of it offhand where there's this it, it's kind of like a a virus there's some there's some like thing that's infested the enterprise's computer banks and at first they're looking for ways to purge it and then the crew starts noticing that it's the the thing is showing signs of being like a civilization yeah with with uh with hierarchy with decision making with autonomy and then it becomes less about purging it from their system and more about how can we how can we get it out of here because it's damaging us how do we communicate with these with with this civilization to get them to realize what they're doing and to try to figure out how to preserve them so uh, and i'm right there with them i don't think like i i do think that there are some people who would look at that and go, well, that's nothing like us. Like the way that we look like look right. at uh, bacteria and viri is nothing like us, clearly not people, uh, and not even try to look for those signs of, of autonomy or self-awareness that that would cause you to go, okay, this isn't uh, an individual or a collection of individuals the way you or I normally think of them, but they, they take all the boxes. Right. Well, and even just that idea of the collection of individuals, I think, is one that becomes important because as a number of different properties have explored, you know, the idea of life that is actually based more on an insect model isn't going to have right. the same breakdown of individuals that we do. Right. Yet it's Are the Borg be... people. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm -hmm. Well, and, 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 and going back to where I started, I, I, I think you're right that Star Trek often pushes this idea of it doesn't have to look like our understanding of life or our understanding of personhood to fit those categories. Right. But I do think the I I think that there are some people, and I believe that you could very well be one, for whom data as a box on wheels is the exact same and just as much a person. Mm -hmm. I don't finish that episode thinking that the judge would decide data was a person if data was a box on wheels. Yeah, and, I don't either, which and, is a problem for me, but well, yeah, and I, I just I highlight that because I think this is something that really needs to be thought about. Is that of all the things that that that, that there that, that there is still that part of our human brain that we we like to categorize things, we like to put things into boxes, um, right? You know, and we decide data is a person because data feels like what we think of as a person. Um, and I'm not sure how much this was intended, but I think maybe even upon that level. That's one of the most important messages of that episode of Star Trek and, and the others about data is data is a – like there are many reasons why data is a person, but 
But if we fall into the trap of thinking that data is a person because data feels like our understanding of a person, right? Then we're falling into a real trap here. Um, right. And, then and, oh, go ahead. Then we're not prop. Then we're not. We're not coming up with criteria for personhood uh, that actually is objective. We're using the fact that we're effectively using the fact that data looks and in some ways acts like we do uh, to riff off of the song from Pocahontas. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're using that as our model for the only people that are people uh, rather than actually like trying to be objective and trying to approach each instance of this question with a, well, doesn't have a face like I do doesn't right. walk or talk like I do, might still be a person. And, and for anyone who thinks that this question is purely academic, you know, I, th this has been one that has been very, very problematic throughout our human history. Right? Yep. And if you go back and read um, the justifications for slavery, most of them were based on black people are not people because they were defining personhood by what it meant to be a European person. You know, yep. and, and even today, that's what the whole Black Lives Matter movement, a big part of it is saying is that like – that, that because of inherent racism, there's, not, there's a perspective that black lives don't matter in the same way. Um, right. This feels like a weird connection, I'm sure, but, but it, it's the same kind of thinking that's happening there. And, and to me, that's, that's the brilliance of, these, of, of why we have to think about these questions. Um, I, I'm not with you. I'm not sure that we're actually going to get artificial life ever, to be frank. Uh, to be frank. And I, I don't want to get into that more in a bit. But, but I do think that this, this is why we have to ask these questions because they have so much relevance for us in our actual world. Right. Uh, so there are other characters from Star Trek, but we've been on Star Trek for a bit, and I want a counterexample. Sure. So let's let's shift gears and talk about some other entities that strike me as, as people, as persons, but are not treated as such in their respective media. Let's talk about Star Wars. Poor Specifically, C-3PO. Yeah. Let's talk <laughs> about droids. Let's talk about R2-D2 and C-3PO. Yep. Uh, Especially C-3PO, he's made the butt of so many jokes, of so much abuse. Uh, he And, like, that's his character's purpose, it seems. That's why he's written in the story, is to be that sort of comic foil. Um, but it's a case where, like, I don't think, for example, that Han Solo would treat C-3PO the way that he does if C-3PO had skin. I Well, I think there's two things there. I think... I'm not sure that Han Solo would, um, right. but I think it's possible that Han Solo would. I think what's even clearer, though, is that George Lucas knew that the audience wouldn't tolerate it. You right. know, there's an episode a while back where Paul and I talked about the idea of, like, who can you kill? And, and the, the underlying idea of that episode is that because we as humans value different things differently, you know, there's an extent to which if we saw a person on screen being abused and maligned the way Han Solo, Han Solo does to C-3PO, we'd probably still find it hilarious because it is very funny. But I think it would, it would strike us as a lot more problematic um, because I mean, it's funny. Until you pointed this out, I never even thought much about this. But as I go back and think about it, you're right. It, it should bother me that another mm -hmm. like life form is being treated the way Han Solo treats C-3PO. Um, right. it, it's funny, but I would also probably have a like, I don't really like the idea that I'm, I'm finding this funny, but because C-3PO is a robot, because he's a droid, we are being given permission by the writers to say, he's enough of a human that we can make fun of him, but he's not enough of a human that you have to care. 
Um, right, and they do a lot of things over the course of the first three Star or okay, the, the first three produced Star Wars movies uh, to dehumanize C three PO. There's the part in in Empire Strikes Back where C three PO gets blown into multiple pieces and is riding around as a backpack for Chewbacca at one point. Um, again, this this is a way like that that can't happen with you or I, we, we'd cease to exist in, if our head were detached from our bodies like right. that. Um, so we, in, we can have some parts of, of our bodies removed uh, as I will, as I'm a living example. Right. Of, but yeah, right. Go, go correct. On. Correct. And, uh, I've, I've had pieces of my body removed, but like we can't do it with our head. We can't like sever all of our limbs and our head and survive. Um, and it is used as a gag. Uh, within that same movie, so it's it's we're not meant to be taking uh, taking this seriously. We're not meant to be horrified by him getting blown into pieces. Um, but if that were an, if that were another kind of entity, that would be very traumatic. Right. So it's a case where uh, I think that the and then keep in mind for for anybody who's who's currently getting ready to write me very nasty letters about how much I hate Star Wars. I really I I love. <laughs> I love Star Wars. It's just this is a place where I feel it falls down um, well, is in the treatment of droids. I'll, I'll give you just one example that ties together Star Trek and Star Wars. Um, as I rewatched that episode, Measure of a Man, one thing I noticed is the authors make a point, the writer makes a point to show us data connecting with mementos. You know, data going through and like yep. the fact that data cares about the memories he has with other human beings. They had this uh, intimacy with with, with, uh, Tasha, with Yar. Tasha Yar. Mm-hmm. And he has pictures of his time with some of the other guys from the crew. And clearly those things mean something to him. Right. And he's got a book from, um, I think it was a gift from Picard. I think so, uh, yeah. Right. We, he's got things for, from Jordy, his best friend, who he actually calls his best friend. Right, yes. We never get any of that from C-3PO. C-3PO clearly cares, and, and, and it was interesting is, the only, like, C-3PO has a sort of servant master caring about Master Luke and about Master Han right. and Master Leia, but the only person who C-3PO has any kind of, like, actual emotional attachment to beyond that is R2-D2. Correct. Um, but there again, we don't see any of those things that, that are used to specifically humanize data, we never see in regard to C-3PO. Right, right. And I mean, I, I don't want to sit here and say that that's necessarily deliberate, um, but it it does make it very it makes it very easy for us to watch Star Wars and not be bothered by how the droids are treated, uh, and not be bothered by uh, in the Phantom Menace seeing uh, yeah. a ton of these battle droids get like thrown out by the Trade Federation to be slaughtered by the hundreds and hundreds by Gungans. Um, you know, to try to advance their, their, I don't even remember their goal in that movie. It's like some kind of like money grabbing thing or whatever. Well, and, it's, and, and that's where the I, movies, movies bad and it should feel bad. <laughs> oh. Totally agree there. <laughs> well, and like, I, I would agree with you that I, I, I'm not sure how deliberate it was in, in terms of C-3PO, but I think right. that the battle droids, it was absolutely deliberate. And 100% that deliberate. That's where I love the Star Wars movies. I, I like most Star Wars fans. I'm not a big fan of the prequels. And frankly, that's one of the biggest reasons, not, not one of the biggest, but um, one of the things I did not like about the prequels was the battle droids. Because um, especially if you listen to any of these podcasts, but especially if you've heard my episode on the movie Logan, 
I am a big believer in the idea that, that war and battle shouldn't be sanitized, that right. we should not be able to think you can like have war and destruction without any human cost. Right. The, the battle droids, I think, are very explicitly a way to have war and battle that isn't going to be emotionally traumatic for the children that, that – uh, the Phantom Menace was very clearly aimed at. George Lucas said very, very specifically, he wanted that movie to be, you know, popular with young kids, kids the right. age of Anakin Skywalker. Right. I, I and think, to, go ahead. And to make those things, so basically, to to solve that problem by saying, well, we'll make them artificial life forms, to me is, I'm not okay with it. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, it happens very frequently. Uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon. Right. The foot soldiers that the turtle because the turtles have actual lethal weapons. So the foot soldiers are all robots rather than people so that Leonardo can cut into them and it's okay, Right. Um, And I mean, and I want to be very clear, I'm not saying literally every robot is a person. Uh, We we have there there is there is a line at which like it is just a drone. Right. Right. It's no different than than the drones that someone is remote controlling to to kill people now. Again, this is why I think we're we're getting there. Um, this is that was a an element of science fiction. I feel like fifteen years ago was something that like we weren't considering, and now right. yeah, we're we're remote killing people with robots. Like Skynet's around the corner, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, we don't want to be on the wrong side of history when the robots rise up trying to kill us. This is true. We love you, robots. That's why we're saying yes. all this. Ro- um, robots, you are people in my eyes. Well, well, but I think but that raises an interesting question: is as much as, like, you know, <laughs> hashtag not all droids, perhaps. But right. Like, I, I, I do think that <laughs> C-3PO, to me, is very decidedly a person. Um, right. R2-D2, I think, is just He's as much 100% a person. a person. And, then actually, and is a box on wheels. Yeah, I mean, that raises an interesting question there, because I think there's no extent to which C-3PO is more of a person to me than R2. Right. But I do think, like, the battle droids, to me, are an interesting case, because... I think that they are meant to be person-like in order that we can have all the enjoyment of slaughtering people without actually having the moral guilt of being people. But right. I, think, I think it's very clear. Like I think if you asked anyone in the Star Wars universe and even anyone watching, the battle droids are not people. Right. Do you think they are? Uh, so they show – the thing is – there are, and I mean, a lot of this is because they just, they wanted to be funny. They wanted things for comedic effect, but there are moments where the battle droids have conversations with, with each other that, or are talking that make me think, well, if this were a pure, cold, calculating machine, it wouldn't act like that. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of like specifically, like there's a, like, there's there's a point at which one goes like oh no or uh oh or something like that where right. like it's it's clearly uh, responding with a very human reaction to a circumstance where it's about to perish. Right. Uh, it, it it it's showing fear and it's showing right. awareness of its own self and the idea that its own self might come to an end and that its own self coming to an end is bad. Right. I think it's, I think that we're supposed to take I think what we're supposed to take away from the battle droids is that. They are mimicking a person rather than actually being self-aware and being people. But that's not how I come away with it. Yeah. I mean, one thing I think was interesting is to to flip this into a different kind of the artificial life question, but I think just as important, is um, 
Have you seen much of the TV show of um, uh, why can't I remember the name of it? But the, the Clone Wars. The Clone Wars. Yes. I have not. I really want to. Uh, so, so but I've, I have not. I've only seen a couple of episodes. I've had a lot of people urging me to watch more, but I have enjoyed what I've seen. Uh, even though I'm not very good with cartoons generally. Yeah. But but one thing that I think is very interesting is, to me again in the prequels, part of what bothers me so much is that both sides are set up as being morally okay to slaughter because it's robots versus drones uh robots versus clones i'm sorry um right and the, and the clones in some way are supposed to be just as much life that does not have moral significance right um, i mean they put them in these these uniforms that hide their face uh right. that like again like they don't have a face makes it easier for us to not think of them as a person well because especially because we can't differentiate them there's no way right. to tell the difference between stormtrooper number 3 and stormtrooper number 5 which is part of why i liked uh well okay it's one of the only things i liked about the prequel movies but there's uh oh god what's his name uh there's a clone with a name right. uh commander oh general grievous no 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 that's a that's a droid with a name uh, no, I'm talking about one of the – a member of the clone army. Uh, oh, my God. Oh, Hold I, on. I, I know the one you're talking about. Commander Cody. Commander Cody. Well, and, and that thing is that he has a little bit of differentiation. Where I started this is in that TV show, Clone Wars, there's actually much more differentiation. And there's actually a great episode where like three of them all get stranded with Yoda somewhere. And Yoda is talking to all of them. And you realize that they become three distinctly different people even though they're clones. Um and to me, that is a fascinating thing because that's where individualization—they become individuals, um, right. able to speak a word that I just couldn't quite figure out. Um, but you know, <laughs> as they become individuals, that's where they become. It, it isn't just possible just to imagine them being slaughtered by the thousands for no good purpose, because right. now these are people. Um, right. So yeah, I, I took this kind of on a tangent so they get, there. But, so they get humanized. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which, yeah, I, I hear the problematic nature of it is like to be humanized isn't necessarily what should be the category by which they become personal person persons. But it but it very much is in in many forms of media that one included. Right. Uh, so so we've we've dove into Star Wars uh, pretty significantly, and we talked about uh, at least one character in Star Trek. There's another one we could spend some time on, uh, and I think it's worthwhile to do so before we go into the one that makes me angry. Um, <laughs> The one that makes me more angry than Star Wars. Uh, and that is the character of the Doctor uh, from Voyager. The holographic Doctor who has no name because he's an emergency medical program, literally introduced as the emergency medical hologram. Um, he's, his function is supposed to be uh, they summon him up when they need assistance. He performs Doctor things and then they turn him off and that's it. Uh, and he's a sequence of of, you know, Supposedly a sequence of logic trees, but is a learning program because it's a crappy doctor who can't be a learning program. Um, it's not going to do a good job. And then in Voyager, their actual doctor dies right. uh, in the first episode, in the pilot. And they're stranded on the the other side of the universe with no way to get a replacement. And so instead of you know, picking up an alien along the way, uh, which they do to fulfill some other roles – uh, they, they just keep using the emergency medical hologram. And as the series progresses, we get to explore whether or not the doctor is a person. 
Uh, and actually, he's the one who advocates most often for himself in this way. Uh, it's interesting, and, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk about the Doctor, uh, I was debating whether or not we were going to, but something that we mentioned earlier about the use of the character as comic relief to uh, to dehumanize them and make things uh, make treatment of them that we normally wouldn't be okay with suddenly okay for us. Uh, that happens with the Doctor. Uh, there's one point where his emitter is messing up, and he's like shrinking, and it's it's completely comic relief for us. We're just supposed to laugh at this and how annoyed he is by it. But the fact that it's not made a priority that a member of their crew is experiencing uh, this this kind of physical ailment, I feel like every other member of the crew they would do something about it. They would they would be on it and they would have the doctor make sure he could do whatever he could to to solve that problem. But because I feel he's a hologram, and this is early in the series before they really like start to treat him as a person, which is another thing I find great is that they don't lead off thinking that way. Um, right, it's really an evolution of their coming yep. to understand him as a person. Yeah, uh, which is great because it it comes with his own self-actualization, right? As he uh, starts to demonstrate these properties, the crew of Voyager like pick up on it and start to adapt how they treat him, um, with things like uh, like questioning after his name because they want to give him they want to have a name to be able to associate with an identity because that will help them. Uh, it's actually something he ends up uh, not doing a very good job of, as I understand it. Uh, but it's... So So what do you think about the character of the Doctor as an example of of a person? Or is, is the Doctor actually a person or just an entity that mimics personhood? In order to have, like, a good bedside manner, for example, which is a, which is a point that is made... Just because of the weird vagaries of life, I actually wound up watching most of Voyager before I saw any of Star Trek, or before I saw more than a couple episodes of Next Generation. So the Doctor was actually my first introduction to these questions. And in a lot of ways, I think I had the evolution with the Doctor that many more people had with Data, in terms of like, at first not thinking of him as a person. Because I do think that's one of the things that a good show is able to do, is it's able to make the audience go on the same journey that the characters are going on. Because those first couple episodes, of course, I didn't think of him as a person. I thought of him as a, a thing, a robot, a, a hologram that was there for comic relief and there to be helpful. And, and he was presented as such. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there are moments when in the audience you start – you know, some of the episodes where he starts to have daydreams. He starts to think mm-hmm. of wishing that he could have a life different than his own, wishing where it's, it becomes clear that he feels things – like because here, very much unlike Data – um, the doctor has a complete emotional life. The doctor is frequently right. frustrated. The doctor is frequently upset. Right. The doctor can become, um, you know, hopeful or or have amorous feelings for other characters or um, just desire, you know, to to take pride in their right. feelings for him. Um, right, and he he expresses emotion constantly. He looks and feels like we do. The episode of Voyager I really love about uh, that really solidifies the Doctor as a person for me is real life, where he literally makes a family yep. for himself, a holographic family to interact with, because he wants a better idea of the human experience. And at first he's doing it to try to help inform him how to treat his patients better, but as the episode progresses, it becomes very clear that what he's really doing is 
trying to satisfy this need for him to have a family. Right. Uh, ultimately coming to the realization that the crew of Voyager is his family and it's very touching. Uh, well, yeah, and I, I remember really liking that episode, but I also remember being a little challenged by that episode because – and this is the question I want to throw back to you. On some level, I have always felt that an essential part of the human experience is is the chaos. Um, mm-hmm. And this is partly my own like spiritual religious feelings. In my, in my understanding of my own religious tradition, there's a lot of teachings about you know that, that one of the worst things humanity can do is come to believe – that we can control all the chaos and to stop thinking right. there's going to be chaos in life and that we're always trying to impose order and think, you know, if we, if we harvest this tree in this way, this will always happen and this kind of things. Um, whether that order is given to us by the laws of the gods or the laws of nature or whatever it is. Um, and, and, and I, to me, one of the things that I think comes up a lot when I watch, when I watch the doctor or other characters try to, still like mechanically create the essence of life is that it loses that chaos. It loses that element of you don't know what's going to happen. And this is actually really well explored, not just with the doctor, um, but they're in the show Voyager because they're alone for so long and they have nothing else to do many times when they're not fighting people. um, They spend an awful lot of time in the holodeck. And there's one great set of episodes where the character of, of Janeway you know, she realizes oh, that she's, yeah. yeah, you know where I'm going. She's a captain, and because of rules about fraternization, she can't have, she can never have a peer, she can never have a romantic relationship. This episode made me so angry. Well, yeah, because so what, yeah. She, what she does is she tries to create a holographic family, a holographic boyfriend who she can enjoy as a peer and as a mate and a, and all that kind of yeah. thing. It's, it, it, sorry, sorry, I'm going to interject. It's Go worse it. than that. So what happens is. Uh, so they've they've created this this holographic town uh, in I think it's supposed to be some kind of fictional Ireland. Yeah. Um, and she like chooses to uh, what is it called? Like it's not fairway. It's um. Oh God. It's, it's not. It's not really again. important. Yeah, the name doesn't matter. Um, but she decides. Okay, the crew's been really enjoying this program. I'll interact with it. She goes into a tavern and she meets this this character this who's a bit of a rapscallion and is just entranced by him and rather than just trying to explore that as the character exists she reprograms him to be more like her what she envisions as her ideal uh mate yeah she finds that he he tells a little bit too much sort of brusque humor so she changes his humor matrix a little bit Right, um, she gives him more uh, knowledge of poetry because she wants that. That's how she wants to be wooed. And, right. Oh my God. Well, and so yeah, I, I that episode it, it it drove me crazy in a lot of ways, but I also thought it was a brilliant episode because to me, that is the essence of of the problem that I see with artificial life, um, with right. with created life is that, and here again, if you can jump over this line, I will fully believe it's human. It, it is it is a person. But I find it very belie- very hard to believe that we're not at some level going to get back down to the programming. You know, that, that any – if I were to have a child, I might go through some great amount of planning and hoping of what that child is going to be. Um, right. On some like base reptile mind, whoever I pick as a mate, I'm on some level doing that, that thinking of, you know, is this person's genetics going to match well with mine to, to create a child? Um, I don't want to have kids. I'm just saying this is the sort of the, the way our biology yeah, yeah. works. But yep. but there is still 
I have no idea what that child is actually going to turn out like. I, I can't program that child. And to me, the place where I think we're going to get closest to this isn't with um, that I think we're going to get artificial life. It's that I think our ability to do genetic planning like that is going to get closer Eugenics, and closer. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And yep. this is where it terrifies me because I think I think of that episode of Janeway, you know? Mm-hmm. And even data, like uh, Sung, the person who made data, is so far off screen, we never have to think about it except for a few episodes. Yep. But anytime we start getting into artificial life, I get very scared at the idea of who is the creator because right. that creator is always going to have some biases. It's always going to be subjective in a way. And I feel right. like even, there, there's no way even, the creation isn't going to have that. Right. Even Sung makes both data and lore in Sung's own image, a, a younger version of, of Dr. Sung, but I, that's the most vanity he actually explores. But I feel that like, the, you know, he he takes the least quantity of indulgence. The person who right. created the holographic doctor literally made him in his image, complete with a bunch of his personality flaws. Yep. Uh, the the fact that he's so brusque is because his creator is also brusque and kind of like asocial, not not a people person. Um, and what? it's something that is funny because it makes doctors the holographic doctor's life more difficult. Uh, but it is part of his it's part of his upbringing. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, if you want to think of it in those terms, and I and I like to think of it in those terms. Uh, one thing I wanted to challenge that you said because, uh, and, and I I don't think this is what you intended, but I think people could walk away uh, mm-hmm. thinking this, that I don't think the the capacity for for programming necessarily uh, strips somebody of what we would consider individualism. Uh, the counterexample I'm going to use is Garibaldi in Babylon 5 gets programmed. Mm. Talia Winters in Babylon 5 gets programmed. There is never a point where they are not people. Well, I think the point is they 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 are people with all of their, you know, they start as people and then someone else is is changing the way their mind works, is brainwashing them at a level far beyond what we could do today. But yeah, I would agree with you. Those cases, they are always and totally people. But, right. They, they, they but, start as people is something that I we, we probably don't want to get it. That's a very deep question, but I'm not sure they do start as people. But well, because we're, we're talking about inception of life. And I feel that these these characters like the holographic doctor actually explore the idea of at what point does an entity start exploring personhood versus just being a life form. Sure. No, and I don't mean I don't mean that it's it, it, again. It's not that it's a binary state. I guess just to right. me, because I'm not talking about changing just the thought patterns. I'm also talking about being able to pick, you know, um, the the hair color and eye color, and yep. and, and being able to design the height. And it, and, yep. and here you're right. I am glad for the challenge. It's not that I'm saying that that means it isn't life, that it isn't personhood. Right. I'm saying I think that that takes us into a very scary kind of personhood. That I think yeah. we, we are right to be very concerned about. Um, yeah, designer people is a scary idea. Yeah, and I think yeah. that that's the to me designer people, whether it's by eugenics or whether it's by robotics or whether it's by <laughs> cloning, um, you know, is, is and it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be bad. Um, I think, but but it absolutely has the capacity for being bad. <laughs> right, and and so that's actually a great lead-in. Let's talk about the one that I know you really want to get into. Oh um, yeah, Agents of Shield Ada, because here we Ada. have. Uh, an artificial life form who becomes self-actualized in some pretty problematic ways. Right. So, okay. Um, obviously, I'm, you know, 
my, my stance in, in all forms of media is clearly robots are people too. So when, <laughs> I, when I'm... Let me just when, say, this, this is, now yeah. we're talking about the most recent season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Correct. Um, this is probably going to go for about five to ten minutes for anybody who wants to just skip ahead if you haven't seen that most recent episode, that most recent season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Go ahead. Right. Right. So uh, the character of Ada is an android who is made by a doctor... Hmm, darn it. What's his name? uh anyway Again, not not important not, not important um he's he makes her as a uh a life model decoy her her role is to be able to simulate a person very very cleanly and very clearly um in order to help preserve like this is how he presents it is in order to be able to help preserve uh life to be able to be used by shield as as an actual shield quote yeah, unquote as, a human cannon fodder Right, exactly. Uh, so that I already have problems with. Uh, but when she starts showing signs of being self-aware, the characters do not react to it. The, the characters in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. do not react to it in a, oh, let's take a step back and start exploring whether or not we need to start treating Ada as a person. They react with complete abject fear. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of this is because it's in the MCU and the last time this happened, to their knowledge, with Ultron, it was a huge Disaster. major problem. Uh, although it's not actually the last time it happened because Vision is the last time it happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and he also had a very powerful thing exposed to him uh, in the form of an Infinity Stone. And as far as we can tell, Vision turned out okay, but we're not talking about that. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> right. I clearly have some biases here. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, so... What made me frustrated with, with the treatment of the character of Ada is that, is that as soon as she starts to show signs of being autonomous, start signs of being potentially sentient, of emerging as, as self-actualized, the characters react immediately as this is something we need to terminate. We need to stop this before it becomes an issue. Right. And nobody, nobody actually explores the idea that maybe – we need to approach this differently. Maybe we need to actually try to see what happens when we treat Ada the way that we would treat you or I. Um, and they get punished for this, actually, because Ada ends up rebelling against uh, against all of our characters, ends up uh, staging effect effectively a coup uh, against them and trying to make herself into a person she, she's constructing her own Pinocchio scenario right. uh, because I feel of this. And there's this whole thing where like, she's also exposed to this, this mystical evil tome that only she can read because if the other characters read it, they'll go mad and go evil, but it's okay for the Android to read it and sure. We'll be fine. Right guys. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, mistakes were made right they, they <laughs> sure. gave her the dark they gave her the dark hole to process because she could do it with no regard of what it might do to her right um, and that's the whole idea of the lmds as well is that it, yep. it's a very clear it, it's the clearest you can possibly have of saying some kind of life is valuable and others aren't because what you're saying is we don't want to put the actual person in any danger so therefore right. it's okay to put the the decoy of that you know um you know you know, Saddam Hussein would find people who looked an awful lot like him and have them do public appearances at places right. where he was afraid of assassination. Um, and some of them were killed because in his world, 
his life was more important was than, more than valuable than those. And yep. that's a story that gets used all the time to show just the monstrousness of Saddam Hussein. And I, I think rightly right. so. But here, when the exact same thing is happening, but because they're constructed life forms, they're not right. seen as people. And, and so, yeah, they're, they're not given anywhere near the same moral weight that a I mean, person would. To, to be fair, when we're dealing with the life model decoys of Coulson and, uh, and Mac, uh, these were androids that were made specifically to emulate those characters, but uh, but subvert, but 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 do things that our protagonists don't want to happen. Right. Right. So these the they are treated as enemies, um, and it's another case where it's okay to kill them. So so these are treated as more disposable than other characters because we we hummed and hawed over killing Ward, mm-hmm. and Ward was very evil. Uh, <laughs> But like all three he, times we killed him. Yep. Yes. Every well, no, <laughs> the last time just because uh, okay, maybe maybe you're not counting this among the three, but Ward in the framework was clearly not. Yes. No. That that's also yeah, true. yeah. Which is interesting that a that's that's an artificial construct that still seemed very much like a person, um, and yeah. So anyway, uh, what what I'm getting at here is that uh. The distinction, I think, between the life metal decoys of Coulson, Mac, etc., et al., uh, and Ada is that Ada, while she was made uh, in the image of the her creator's uh, former lover, uh, was not actually programmed with any personality characteristics of her own. Right. Uh, she was actually made completely as a learning model. And so in that case... Ada is more of an individual um, because her she is actually just the sum of her experiences at that point. Um, and but she's treated the same way as the other life model decoys in uh, that. Like, yeah, I, I take I take umbrage with that. Uh, and it, it made me angry until the very end of the season when our when our protagonists are very punished for mm-hmm. for how they did that. Well, and here's a way in which I think actually it, it mirrors what happens with actual humanity. And again, I don't have kids, but I, I, I have many friends who do. And I, I've, I've worked a lot with parents in, in, in my uh, past as a counselor and a therapist and things like that. Um, you know, one of the hardest parts about having children is that you don't know what they're going to grow up to. You think you mm-hmm. can plan. And I think there's a weird thing that happens with the LMDs and ADA, which is very similar, which is that their controllers think they know – what's going to happen. And I think this is actually a trope that gets played out an awful lot of the time. Same with Ultron, same with a lot of them. The problematic androids are the ones who were never intended to become self-actualized. You know, that, mm-hmm. that what they basically do is jump the shark of their own programming um, to, to, to mix metaphors terribly here. Um, right. And, and I'm thinking about this because I'm thinking about that, that, that maybe that's um, part of the difference with data because data, for example, is someone who, was very much designed to be self, to be an individual, yeah. to be self-actualized. To, to learn and grow and right. and change at, with his experiences, yes. Well, and, and that because going back to the parenthood thing again, it's that one of the things that, as I understand it, makes someone a good parent is the ability to, to prepare for the unexpected, to be ready for, if my child does this, how am I going to handle it? How am I going to give my child the resources to be able to deal with a situation where this happens? What happens right. with Ultron, what happens with Ada, what happens with a lot of these characters is 
because they're designers, and I think the hubris here is a is a key issue. Their designers never imagined that their 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 the things they have built could ever do something beyond what they have built them to do. They don't in any way prepare them. So someone like Ada all of a sudden becomes self actualized, self yep. self referential, and doesn't have any of the tools needed to build a moral structure. And so right. she goes into a totally amoral sort of existence. Ultron doesn't have any of the tools needed to to deal with his sentience and to deal with his knowledge and so goes into a kind of world destructive uh behavior right and it, and it makes a lot of sense that this happens but it doesn't mean that they're not people and it doesn't mean that they're inherently amoral or inherently evil oh absolutely yeah yeah i mean to, to me the evil if it can be found is in the programmer it's in the it's in the right. maker who didn't who who set these? Cre- I mean, you know, I think Ada is someone who was set up to fail. The way so Tony they- so Tony Stark is evil. Interesting. <laughs> All right, never thought I'd hear you say that, but okay. <laughs> I mean, I am Team Tony in some other ways, but I think into well, I, I have a lot of problems with the movie Ultron to begin with. Yeah, but I, I mean, do, but I do. So think- Tony screwed the pooch when he made Ultron. He didn't do it right. Yeah, I mean, and, the, the, and- word, the word evil is problematic and one I should probably avoid more than I have. Right. Um, right. But I do think that the moral culpability for Ultron does lie with Tony Stark. And there like in I again I'm I, I enjoy the character of Tony Stark and so I'm I'm glad this didn't happen from a storytelling perspective. But to me, the movie Ultron should end with Tony Stark on trial for mass murder. Or at least right. for, you know, the grossest criminal negligence possible. Because Although interestingly his, Go ahead. Don't go on. I was gonna say because his creation is directly responsible for, you know, thousands, if not millions of deaths. But in doing that, we deny the personhood of Ultron, because if if Ultron is a person, then Ultron is the one who's responsible for those actions. Just like if my, if I had a child and my child uh, was a sociopathic serial killer, I'm not put on trial for my child doing those things. Well, regardless actually, of how bad of a parent I was. Actually, in some cases, now you are. Now there, you know, we've we there um there's there's been doing this more in Europe, but also in America, there have been some cases where. You know, of uh, um, people who um, uh, have kids who, you know, the parents are clearly aware of the child becoming radicalized, becoming uh, a Nazi, becoming that that kind of thing. If the child goes on to do violence in the name of that, the parents aren't necessarily held criminally responsible, but they certainly can be held in, in a civil libel case responsible. Um, and again, that, that, that gets us into a whole other area, and right, I, right, right. I'm not a legal expert by any means. This is not a legal podcast. Yes, not, right. not in the slightest. But but pulling it back to this case, I guess to me this is where I go back to the idea of the difference between a parent and a creator. There mm. is that chaos element that to me um, says that a parent, you know, even if there is some degree of culpability, like I would never say that, you know, you know, I, I think children who bully like their parents should be at least somewhat held responsible, but they're not directly doing the thing. Um, but even though Ultron does become a person or, or become a, a you know uh, with a plan and all that, it's still Tony Stark is still so directly responsible for the creation of Ultron and for the the situation in which once Ultron becomes self actualized, there's nowhere for Ultron to go except towards destruction. It does seem to me that Tony Stark bears, and again maybe that's where it's the negligence, not the murder trial. Right, but I guess like. So this is this is good. I disagree with you. 
Uh, I don't think there's a distinction to be made between uh, being a parent and being a creator of a self-actualized entity uh, in terms of like, I think this is the responsibilities are the same to try to provide them with a moral compass um, to, to try to, to guide them as a parent would. I don't, I don't see a difference other than like, you don't have two biological entities involved in the creation of the individual, but an individual was still created. Uh, and it, I, I just I see zero distinction. I think that it's Tony Stark is Ultron's dad, and Tony mm-hmm. Stark was a terrible father, right? Uh, because he did well. It was his first kid, and Tony Stark was <laughs> he's never been presented to us as a very responsible person. So it makes complete sense to me that he would not be a good dad. But and and what's really funny, if you want to like torture this metaphor further, <laughs> is that the way he oh no no, no I'm gonna Go I'm gonna drive this stuff into the ground. Take it home. Uh, what what he's good what he does to try to solve this problem is have another kid yes <laughs> right he's all like no no i can fix this i can do better this time which is a very human reaction mm-hmm. and and deeply problematic and i think certainly yeah. uh, you know as much as i might be team tony over team cap for for at some point we're gonna have that podcast because i want to be able to explain those reasons <laughs> um, <laughs> although it is in an article i wrote for this podcast long long for this blog long long ago it, it's great um, because i'm definitely more team cap so that'll be fun sounds good i i think most people are i'm definitely in the minority though i've met at least a couple who are on my side um but yeah no in this regard i think tony stark and he, so here again i would say in your mind where does Tony Stark's culpability for Ultron compare to the Doctor and the other people who who so fail Ada? So in the case of so so hold on uh, so you're saying how does Tony Stark fall compared to the person who made the Doctor versus the person who no, made no, Ada the, or the, the Doctor whose name we can't remember who made Ada like comparing oh the people okay. who like if. Do you put the people – because you were earlier saying that you like have very strong feelings about the people who failed Ada and who sort of like right. created the situation where she was designed to go evil. Um, right. Do you, do you put Tony Stark on the same level of moral – like is Tony Stark's moral culpability to Ultron the same as the people who created Ada to Ada? I think so. I think it is. Uh, and be, it, it's mostly because um, – uh, in in the case of Tony Stark, he he made a thing, he made an entity, and didn't respond. And he responded in a very human way when it was when Ultron was showing signs of self actualization. But he didn't respond in a way that a parent should uh, to to their child going astray, to their child exhibiting problems. Um, and in some ways, it's because he created something that was difficult for himself to interact with on a level playing field. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult because when something, uh, when the way we biological entities emerge in the world, um, we attain a level of, of, of physical capacity, uh, for, for revolt, if you will, uh, much later. And so there, we're given all this cushion time, uh, to to negotiate uh, and to to learn these these things that should guide our moral compass. But Tony could have done that. He could have taken the programming of Ultron and interacted with it on that level first before it had physical form, before he you know put it in a machine to mm-hmm. to try to stop another um, another Chitari incident from occurring. 
I mean, and that's actually a really interesting way of framing it because actually going back to what we were saying before about um, moral culpability, you know, if if a 20-year-old child goes out and shoots someone, the parents are not really going to be held legally responsible. If a two-year-old gets access yeah. to a gun that's in the house, the parents are absolutely held responsible. Right. And granted, this is not going to make for good storytelling, but but I think one of the one, – you know, an interesting element to these stories could be if you had someone who said, I'm going to try and create an artificial life form. I'm going to create a robot or a droid or what have you, but I want this to be a fully actualized person. So I'm going to take 18 years to right. emotionally grow. Um, yep. And because and, I think the conceit is often that because these are robots, that their their minds work so fast but maybe this is that's what's failing. Is that what, what all you know? We're basically dealing with with Ada and with Ultron and with all of these. These are basically emotional newborns or emotional toddlers, and right. so of course they're going to you know act out of pure id instead of like you know more developed feelings. Um, right. So is, we we could talk about this for a very long time, obviously. But I feel like we've we've hit a good point where we've covered a uh, sufficient breadth of the topics. Or any like final thoughts you want to share? before we before we conclude this so not to start this is a whole other conversation but I'll, I'll just sort of name what is for me the thing that i keep coming back to is and again this is where i'm trying not to be religious or spiritual or anything like that but there is i, I am definitely someone who holds the ideas that there are mysteries in life that we don't fully understand and for me the creation of life is one of those you know, the, the thing that happens, we can biologically explain what happens when a sperm and, a, and an egg meet. Um, but on some level, maybe what I'm talking about is the soul. Maybe what I'm talking about is the existence of, you know, what, whatever it is that, that comes into a life form. I, I think this, this would be a whole other topic for us to discuss, but I just wanted mm -hmm. to name, I think it is to me the interesting thing that's missing a lot of the times from the conversations about artificial life. And, and the reason I wanted to go into it is because what I think is interesting is that almost all of the, the, the life forms in the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe have this to some extent. Because in, in every case, there is some mystical element that's part of the creation of their life. One of the Infinity Stones or the Darkhold or there is some mystical thing that comes in that, that helps to move them from being just robotic life to being self-actualized self life. Um, again, that's a topic we could get really deep into the woods on. Um, but I just want to throw it out as, as, as to me, it's one interesting element to what, what the Marvel Cinematic Universe does that, that I don't think most of the others do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts I'm on sure, that, I'm sure. <laughs> but again, we're trying to wrap up, uh, the, I guess the, the final thought I'd like to share is, um, I, I'm hopeful that as uh, media explores these questions further, we get more of this idea of of culpability on the part of the creator uh, because it, it's something we don't get a lot of. The creator's often an absent an absent parent figure, right. uh, like the case of Doctor Nunyansung, like the case of the person who created the holographic doctor, um, and but but also. And I, I don't want to. You opened up a huge can of worms with that last <laughs> one. I really, am, I really want to bite at that because worms are delicious. But uh, take, take, you, you, can give, you can give your one response, and then we'll both agree right. to sort of move on. All right. So uh, even I, I'm not 
convinced that you need a spiritual element to have this quandary uh, only because there are so many, speaking as a scientist, there are so many factors, so many variables we are exposed to in our development that it, I don't think it's possible to, to predict how nurturing will actually cause somebody to develop. We, we have a, we have some ideas, we have some guidelines, but I will say that I think that when you accelerate the process, uh, you have the capacity to lose nuance because you're gonna if you if you learn too fast a particular notion, it can actually leave you uh, leave you blind to a lot of other ideas that you would normally have been exposed to gradually over time. So this is a problem I think with with artificial life uh, that you know you, you kind of have to figure out a way to slow them down, yeah. which hasn't really been explored uh, because they'll reach the conclusion that you reached after 18 years of living on this one idea without all of the context that you had in those 18 years of living to help form that idea. So they are exposed to fewer variables and are much so can come to a conclusion that's not as mature, if you will. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with you there. And, and also, just to be clear, it's, it's not that I think the mystical has to be a part of life. And I, I am a big believer in the idea that often the mystical or the religious is just that which science hasn't figured out yet. Um, it, I, I just think it's interesting that as far as I can tell, and maybe, maybe there are others that, that readers or listeners can, can point out to us, but the Marvel Cinematic Universe I just think is a little bit unique in that it's one of the ones where it, 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 it specifically interjects some element of something beyond modern cur current scientific understanding to sort of drive what happens to these life forms. Yep. Um, so just, it's, just, it's just one more interesting take on all this. Um, yep. So if you want to if you want to take us out, uh, I hope everybody enjoyed this topic. Uh, it's obviously one I'm very passionate about. So cool. Well, no, thank Jacob. Thank you so much for hosting this. I think this was a, a, a great conversation. Really good topic. Um, Jacob's passionate about it. I'm passionate about it. Um, are you guys passionate about it? What do you guys think about this issue? Um, is data a person? Is the doctor a person? Um, is it okay that the battle droids are treated the way they are? Um, do you agree with us? Do you think we're totally wrong? Um, are you willing to brave the wrath of our uh, robot overlords that will be coming one day soon? Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, let us know. For us, uh, Jacob and I love these conversations, and we want to keep these conversations going with more of you. So um, please take a moment. If, you, if, if you're interested, send us a tweet. Uh, find us on Facebook. On both of those, we are Superhero Ethics. Um, if you send it, both Jacob and I will see it. We'll be able to respond. You can also email us at superheroethics at gmail.com. Um, we're really glad you're listening. We'd love for you to do what you can to help others listen. If you, if you, ha if you can, just take a moment and go to the iTunes page um, for Superhero Ethics. It's just iTunes Superhero Ethics. Leave us a review. Um, five stars helps to make sure that other people listen um, and, and, and find out about us. But if you don't think we're worth five stars, tell us why. Tell us what you like about the show. Tell us what you don't like about the show. We would love to hear your feedback. It would be a great, uh, great way to sort of keep the story going. So – Jacob, thank you very much for uh, leading this. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Have a great day. Oh, man, I hope people like nerds navel-gazing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, this is something I lo just love doing.